You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're in Zaragoza. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freeber and I'm the host of this episode. And I am in Zaragoza, the capital of Aragon, and frequently described as the city of the celebrated late 18th and early 19th century painter Francisco de Goya. Despite the fact that he was born 44 kilometers from here, a roost that Ryanair would embrace centuries later to lure tourists to tiny provincial airports in the vague vicinity of major cities. In his teens, Goya traveled to Italy to immerse himself in that country's glorious artistic heritage. According to some sources, traveling to Rome with a gang of bullfighters and soon finding work as a street acrobat, then an aide to a Russian diplomat. He also apparently became infatuated with a nun whom he planned to abduct from her convent. Inspired by all of this, tonight's guest is another emigre who undertook a similarly, well, shall we say, formative voyage to Italy and has since led an equally colourful life. It's El Baron, the Great Dane, Brian Nygaard. Brian Brian, um, have you ever been a street acrobat or abducted a nun? Uh, let me just quickly think about that. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I was just browsing through the, the, the formative wilder years, you know, but uh, no, no, none of those things occurred. But Brian, I did read that. I read that life story, that very colourful life story, and I did think of you. If, um, I don't know if that's any, any comfort or slightly alarming. Um, you have led a very colourful life. He's certainly a painter that I, that I like a lot. So I'm, I'm thankful for that connection. You know, whenever I go to Madrid, those are some of the, the, the paintings I would seek out, but yeah, but thank you. Brian, do you know much about Zaragoza? Uh, I, was, I was looking forward to visiting, this is one of Spain's biggest cities. I think it's um, the fifth or sixth biggest city in Spain. About 600,000 people uh, live here. It's not a city I know very well. It's quite a grand city with some um, very splendid monuments. We didn't see many of them today. I'm, I was slightly disappointed that the finish line wasn't closer to some of the the main sites in Zaragoza. Uh, At the moment, I'm well. I'm a crowded bar, as you may be able to hear, surrounded by some of the sort of early evening movida in Zaragoza. Uh, but we didn't get to see too much of it. Do, have you been here? Do you know it? Yeah, but only uh, via the Vuelta. Uh, but I have to say, though, it always reminds me. And this is a recommendation to you and our, our dear listeners. There's a very fine book called The Manuscript Found in Zaragoza. Have you ever have you ever heard about that? Have you ever read it? Not familiar with it. Okay, so it's um, it's actually written by a, a, a Polish author and a, an account called Jan Potocki, but it's old uh, Moorish ghost stories, all set in the uh, Sierra Morena mountains in 18th century Spain. Uh, and it's, it's a fantastic series of ghost stories, adventure stories, uh, a lot of them quite funny, quite uh, quirky, a little bit goth. It's a fantastic book. I can highly recommend it, and it's also translated into English. Doesn't sound like suitable nighttime reading for the Vuelta Espana, though, Brian. Um, you know, I've got a job to do here. I don't want to be spooked before I go to bed. It is still uh, certainly, yeah. yeah this is there's also ghost stories, proper ghost stories. Do you believe? I've got, en- I've got enough, uh, enough things to deal with. Um, speaking of ghosts, ghosts of the of Vuelta's Wel- past, maybe um, in Zaragoza. One thing I did expect, Brian, or hoped about today's stage was that it might be very fast because there's a precedent, isn't there? There are several precedents for certainly windy stages and one extremely fast tailwind stage in the Vuelta España in 2001 that finished in Zaragoza. Fastest Grand Tour stage of all time, three hours and 14 minutes to do 179 kilometers, uh, 55.17 kilometers an hour, much faster than the fastest stage ever in the Giro. In, that was in 2020, Matera Brindi, uh, Brindisi. And the fastest stage in the Tour de France was way back in 1999. That was 50.36 kilometers now, won by Mario Cipollini. Um, there wasn't much wind today, Brian. I should also say that that stage of the Vuelta in 2001 was won by Igor González de Galdeano, who was a kind of a GC rider. And I watched some of the, the tape of that day. And it was literally, if you imagine a peloton, a bunch being blown by a hurricane at their backs, it was a bit like that. And I don't think Igor González de Galeano even intended to attack. He just sort of caught a favorable gust of wind and ended up winning the stage. But Brian, shall we find out exactly what did happen today, 22 years on from the stage we've just been talking about? 
El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Brian, what happened today? Well, thank you, Daniel. I, I should be able to do the fastest ever the tale of the etapa on this stage, the stage 12 from Olvega to Zaragoza, 150, uh, 150.6 kilometers. A two-rider breakaway dominated the day by someone, I think, from Walter Lovers, uh, Jetze Ball, a fairly known figure because he was, I think he was one year trailing very closely to the to the leader's jersey. And uh, he was joined in his attack by Abel Balderstone. Is this the right pronunciation, Daniel? You would be the only one to know. I, I think it is the right pronunciation if you are British, which, uh, Bal- which is not. Balderstone... <laughs> Balderstone, his dad was British. Um, I'm going to endeavour in the next couple of days to find out exactly where his father was from. But uh, Balderstone, as the Spaniards call him, is very much Spanish or very much Catalan. In fact, um, he grew up in a place called uh, Ujastre in what's well, close to Barcelona, I believe, and spent all his life there. Our good friend and colleague, Fran Reyes, had a, had a long conversation with Balderstone yesterday at the start and told me subsequently that he doesn't even speak particularly well great English I'm sure it's it's um, perfectly fine but he, he I don't think he's bilingual he's very much Spanish if he does have a second language it is probably Spanish in fact his first language may well be Catalan but we'll maybe find out more about him in the coming days I mean if it wasn't for that interjection this would have been the fastest one either way nothing <laughs> but they built up they built up a, a, a decent gap but it was uh, it was soon to diminish once the the bigger teams started to gun their engines. Uh, a crash by six riders uh, later in the stage was uh, luckily no one I think got seriously hurt. With 45 kilometers, uh, Bellastone struggled to hang on after Ball accelerated. He got dropped with 39 kilometers to go. Ball was then caught by the chasing peloton. It was a fairly straightforward run into Zaragoza um, once they crossed the, the, the bridge across the river at least. But what looked like a penalty shoot uh, without a goalkeeper for Alpacinde Koenig turned into a kind of like a mad chase more than a sprint because it looked like Caden Grove stepped out of his pedal and had to do uh, his first sprint just to get back up. But by then, Molano had already been launched brilliantly by Oliveira and won his second ever Volta stage. It was actually... At least it's impressive that uh, Caden Groves finished second because he actually had to yeah, do a, a sprint just to get back up and then a sprint to try and win the stage. But yeah, there he was. F- very visibly annoyed by what had happened, but uh, yeah, equally joy on, on the UAA team with Milano's win. Brian, there was one tiny change on general classification. Not change of positions, but a change in the standings, wasn't there? Which tiny, but possibly significant and we're going to hear about it in just a moment. Primoz Roglic took two bonus seconds, unexpectedly. Just consulting the standings now, um, what did it do to the time gaps themselves as we go into, well, this big week, big weekend in France tomorrow? Yeah, yeah massive one. So, I mean, he's obviously still in fifth. He's now 132 uh, behind uh, his teammate Kuss with uh, Remco Evenepoel being 109. So he, he edged a little bit closer to Evenepoel. Brian, we'll maybe talk about the thinking behind that move, if it can be considered a tactical move later. Maybe once we've heard from Primoz Roglic, will we, which we will do in just a second. But um, before we do hear from some of the protagonists today, Brian, the move that... Well, you mentioned Caden Groves there having an issue, um, chain jumping, it looked like. We're going to find out more about what exactly did happen to him in just a second. But the move from uh, Rui Oliveira and uh, Sebas Molano, the eventual stage winner, um, it struck me that had that been a bit later, 50 metres, 100 metres, 200 metres closer to the finish line, if it was a sprinter sort of moving that far across the road and not a lead-out man, then maybe, maybe there would have been some cause or a case for for disciplinary action or a disqualification. What do you think? Well... It was a really wide road. I mean, that, there was one of the widest boulevard sprints you see in this world, apart from Madrid. And I think the fact that the the other decapitated lead-out train was more towards the middle and or the other side of the road. So I think they they don't really disturb anyone majorly by by doing that move. It's a pretty brilliant move because it's a three-man lead-out, or that ended up being just a, 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 that one brilliant lead-out by Oliveira. But I didn't see it as I didn't see any anything that I mean normally they they sanction quite 
oftentimes they sanction quite hard for those those types of moves. But yeah, apparently not today. I don't think it was sanctionable either, to be honest. I mean, it's a bit like the argument in football that sometimes we see fouls happen in the penalty area that are overlooked and the same foul goes punished somewhere else on the field. Yeah. And similarly, I, I do get the feeling sometimes that there are moves in the middle of stages and, well, in this case, in the lead out that if transposed to the sprint itself. We always talk about change, sprinters changing lanes, deviating in the sprint. It seems to me that the commissaires are a little bit more permissive when it comes to anything that happens before the last sort of three, four, five hundred meters. However, Brian, as you said, Sebas Molano did get his second Vuelta stage win. Of course, he won the final stage in Madrid last year, which was a, an unusual one because he was the guy who was supposed to be leading out in Madrid last year, and it was supposed to be Pascal Ackerman um, who was sprinting for UAE, but Molano just so happened to be faster on that occasion. And they came in, did they come in one and two or one and three? It was it was quite bizarre. And, well, it was so emphatic today that Rui Oliveira was able to sprint to, was he fourth in the end, Brian? Yes. Um, they, they, the, those first sort of three or four riders were a long way ahead, and partly because of the lack of strong sprint trains, as we've, spoke, as we've spoken about before in this Vuelta, and partly because it was, well, an outstanding lead up by Rui Oliveira and but Alpecin had like the they had the, the lead out to win the, the the bike race I mean they were they were they were perfectly aligned uh, I don't know if if, yeah, if it's either the pedal or the chain he definitely lost his balance to a point where he, where he had to like he lost all of his kick all of his acceleration just as he was about to start but they their lead out train would have been perfect if they had I mean he had a bit 12 meters 1200 meters to go he, he had like his complete lead out train at his disposal. Well, Brian, it was a pretty disappointing. Caden Groves spoke to us at the finish line, spoke to me and uh, my colleagues from Eurosport, GCN and a few others. We're also going to hear from Rui Oliveira. I mentioned his outstanding lead out. He was pretty ecstatic um, after the finish line. And we're also going to hear from, you know what I mean, uh, Primoz Roglic uh, um, about those two bonus seconds that he game today and well why exactly he was going for bonus seconds got bumped by uh uae who came with momentum and uh, my chain actually dropped so i managed to get it on i think i showed a really strong sprint but unfortunately it was uh too far back too late because at the end it looked like you you, you were catching uh, molano even eh, in the last few hundred meters yeah for sure i mean uh i'm in good shape and um like i say the guys got me fresh into the final and in the end it was just unlucky mechanical i think uh I had to come from quite a long way back and uh, yeah, I think I showed my speed anyway. Rui, congratulations. Just talk us through the, well, your job in the lead out and how you pulled it off. Yeah, uh, today we knew it would be a sprint I would have to time pretty well because it was a bit of head crosswind and was always slightly bending to the left. Uh, so I knew we would have to time it really well. I had patience, patience this time. Molano wanted to go like 600. I just was trying to follow, find the, the right moment. And like for 50 to go, I just find the gap. I knew it would be on my wheel. Like, luckily I had the legs to do a really good lead out. And just seeing, finishing first, I'm, I'm so proud. Describe that feeling, what is it? Is it relief mainly after, well, a lot of sprints where you've executed well, but you haven't got the victory? Yeah, it's exactly that. Uh, I, I've done so many lead outs in these last five years with this team. And sometimes I, there, will, there would be renters that would run so many seconds and thirds uh, with really good lead outs. So the work really doesn't show when you don't win, no? So to be able to pull a really good lead out and our sprinter delivers is something you, yeah, something pretty special. I mean, we come with the GCT mainly and it's just me and Molano, you know. Uh, we, we had pretty pretty hard stages uh, the first week also had a few crashes uh, the first stages actually I didn't know I was going to survive the the following days but uh, yeah I mean it just to to make a friend win make a teammate win for me is always so special and to make it in a grand tour uh, well I'm, I'm speechless yeah it's nice no uh, to gain something sometimes you gain a bit sometimes you lose was already the plan then to be up there in the intermediate sprints? Uh, not really, uh, but then uh, I was there and uh, yeah, I went for it. How important are these seconds, do you think, in this welter? 
we'll see at the end. Well, you think it's needed because tomorrow on Turmala the differences will be much more. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, we will see. Uh, uh, tomorrow, new day and new challenge. Does it cost too much energy, you think? Oh, we'll see. Uh, I don't care, really. Uh. Thank you. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, Brian... We heard there from, uh, well, oblique as ever, Primoz Roglic. Um, I feel as though, I don't know, who were the, who were the publishers that used to, used to bring out phrase books and, well, dictionaries, you still get those. The sort of Tories, Hugo, was it? Hugo phrase book. I feel as though someone should bring out a Roglicism. It should actually be you, Daniel, to be honest. <laughs> this is like, you, 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 you could hire yourself, you could hire yourself for that. Does any of it mean anything? I'm not really sure. Not to him, it doesn't. <laughs> no. It feels like you need sort of special glasses or special headphones. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, remember those books when, when we were kids with dinosaurs and you had to like put them further away and then all of a sudden there was a yeah, pattern that yeah, you hadn't yeah. seen up until then. Maybe there is like a side to, to Roglic that's like just will completely one day like completely mystify everything and turns out to be... I'm sure someone somewhere out there is developing some kind of advanced AI 4D technology that will finally be able to translate Primoz Roglic's thoughts into, well, the kind of language that we understand. We also heard there from Rui Oliveira. I said he was ecstatic. He was very proud. That was the, the first time that he had contributed, I believe, to a sprint win in a major tour. It's his fourth major tour. And yeah, always really nice to do an interview like that. Quite often we approach days like today as sort of routine days, transitional days and I think as we said earlier on in the Vuelta, there are always riders in the peloton for whom, and Brian you'll have seen this many many times working for teams, for whom it, it is potentially, well it's career defining and um, we saw that with Jeffrey Soup in the last sprint finish When you look at the start list at any Grand Tour you, uh, if, if, which you have done a million times you'd be surprised how many riders are in, in that position where you know they will go through you know, major parts of the season and even for people who follow the sport quite closely, you couldn't exactly put a yeah, pinpoint the moment where they were extremely relevant and mission crucial for their team. But if you pull that, it's a bit like a bass player in, in a band. If you, if you take them out of the mix, you immediately f see that there's something, there's something missing. It's only the big super teams that can sometimes, if they lose a guy or two, they'll, they'll, you know, they have strong enough riders to figure out what they need to do. Other, other teams don't, even some of the bigger teams don't. Either it be a road captain or someone that can make sure that the sprinter gets positioned well or someone that just has the, the horsepower. I mean, imagine if today had been a crosswind stage, if, if, they, if the wind was blowing a gale, you, you, you would probably see some of those. I mean, unfortunately, we didn't see it because there wasn't any TV coverage of it the other day. But then you'll see those types of riders. You really see why it makes so much sense for any team to, to rely on, on because if someone like Oliveira, this guy with a massive engine, um, and they, they just, they want to they be relevant. They want to be part of, of a victory, and that's really what they, that's, that's their job. I'm always quite sort of intrigued and, and in a way impressed by the way UAE have, well, they, they, they've stuck with some of their sprinters and they've continued to invest in the sprint team. We heard Oliveira say there that basically it's him and Molano, this Vuelta España. But unlike other teams, that once they get a sort of a taste, a bite of the, the Grand Tour cake, then they really lean into that and they, you know, they completely dispense with any other objectives and everyone who joins the team is essentially a, a Grand Tour domestique. UAE have kept this sort of small but still relatively significant sprint division. And, and Molano himself, I mean, he's a rider who's had, he's had some issues in the past. Um, last year at the Dauphiné, I remember when he had oh, that yeah. altercation with uh, Hugo, Hugo Page. Um, he's quite an explosive character and they obviously have quite a lot of faith in him and they've been rewarded and it struck me today as well that um, that there's this sort of private battle going on between Jumbo Visma and UAE to be the number one team in the world and to end the, t the year as the number one team in the world and then um, well today will have been very valuable um, in that light. Of course over the weekend Brian well Jumbo Visma will be pursuing another goal some would say a more important goal and and you know uh, this historic goal of 
winning three Grand Tours in a year. You know, I've been talking about it with some colleagues over the last couple of days, Brian, and what would make that even more impressive would be doing it with three different riders. Um, almost unfathomable, in fact, um, that, that they could possibly do that, isn't it? Yeah, and especially if the third guy has done and been a major part of, of the former two, that, that is, is just I mean, at least as impressive being being that guy but just one brief thing about what we spoke about before you know when with Jumbo Visma for instance it was obvious that they they had to let Dylan Groenewegen go because he wanted to win tour stages and there was no room for him so I was actually quite surprised when they kept Olaf Koy because I mean he's, he's winning bike races left to right and he's potentially a superstar in that in that part of the those types of stages so and, and oh, I, as, I don't know I don't know I think Koy might be Koy didn't win in the Tour of Britain today I think um yeah, I think I think his goose might be cooked now. Yeah, I still think he has the potential to win, at, in any type of uh, a Grand Tour or even a bigger race than the Tour of Britain. But I was quite surprised that they would keep him because he he would know that you know he could he knows already that he's not going to do the Tour next year. I find that completely impossible to to imagine. But still, yeah, it, it's uh, those those big teams that are many faceted as as UAE is actually quite. A, I think it's I think it's great and also goes to show that they 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 know they have the, one of the biggest stars now actually two or three of the biggest stars in Grand Tours, but still they they invest in and and they take out riders who could potentially help, say Ayuso uh, better than than the ones they have and and, and it's it's old school in in a, in a way that I, I quite appreciate. You don't see that very often. Brian, we're going to talk a lot more about the Tourmalet and tomorrow stage later on. We're going to focus on the route in particular later on, but obviously tomorrow will be. Will be billed, I suppose, as a battle between Remco Evenepoel and the Jumbo Visma Troika, um, the Trident. That is Sepp Kurs, the race leader, Jonas Vingegaard, and Primoz Roglic. And Brian, we haven't spoken for a few days. You haven't been on the pod for a few days. Um, just give us your sort of um, 25,000 foot view of, well, Jumbo over the last few days, and maybe your countryman as well, Jonas Vingegaard. Well, it was really impressive the way Sepp Kurs. Uh, did the time trial you know given his I think probably pretty minuscule preparation one riding a time trial but also riding one in, in, in such an important part of the Grand Tour where in the leaders jersey I thought, I thought that was really impressive I know that Evnepoel said he wasn't as good as he was hoping to be but it was still it was a good enough time trial I mean it's not like he we saw in the Giro as well, even when he wasn't at his best, he was still the better rider in a time trial, you know, the one he won before he exited in, in, in this year's Giro. But I think the, um, looking from the outside, and that's taking everything into consideration, I think Primoz Roglic is the strongest rider in, in the world, and, and he is my absolute favorite for winning. It would take a different, but it would. And he's obviously not going. He's not going to ride aggressively to try and win the race because his team made is in the leader's jersey. But I think there'll be so many attacks from Evenepoel. Uh, I think, in the race will be extremely hard because of the pace that Jumbo Visma will will try and set, especially tomorrow. So I, I think that the, it'll be a it'll be a two horse race against uh, Roglic and Evenepoel. Interesting. Yeah. I, I I mean. Brian, this morning at the start in particular, just talking casually to a lot of people about how they saw things, um, it, it seems to me that confidence is growing in Sepp Kuss as his own confidence is growing. But you and I speak about this a lot and people are very trigger happy when it comes to sort of declaring Grand Tour GC battles over long before, yeah. well, long before the fat lady has started to loosen her vocal cords, shall we say. And, and it seems to me that, that is, that's the case at the moment. Um, you know, we heard from Larry Warbass, the lucky, lucky Larry, the Motortown Maestro yesterday, uh, maybe trying to make amends for having suggested the previous day that Sepkus wasn't going to keep the jersey in the time trial. But yesterday, Larry said, oh, you know, a minute, or just over a minute, it's a lot to lose just on, I don't know, a few attacks from Remco on explosive finishes. But, you know, you look at Sepkus's record in stage races, I think I mentioned it yesterday, he hasn't really done any stage races um, of any note in the last few years as the team leader with any well with any great success he, he hasn't done many full stop as the leader um, he hasn't won a stage race since 2018 and he, he is very green I suppose as a as a green as a Grand Tour leader of course um, I suppose on the flip side of the coin he doesn't really have a lot of pressure does he and no. speaking to people in and around the team 
they uh, they have talked about the, the fact that Sepkus is a very relaxed individual anyway. He's a very selfless individual, as we've heard repeatedly over the last few days. But also, the you know the team or well, Sepkus has fulfilled his objectives for the year. He's basically provided the assists for. Um, team leaders to win the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia and I'm sure if you'd asked him at the start of the year whether he thought he would do the Vuelta he, he would have said no so yeah. it's it's all been a bit of a bonus hasn't it? Yeah absolutely but but even taking that into consideration I still think that they would really like him to win mm. you know I don't think they have normally wouldn't say oh would you prefer this guy or that guy but given his position and given how he's worked for the others I think they would really like to see him win but it's just with the with the remaining stages and and everything. If it, if you stack everything up against what can happen, you know, with his, I think experience is not as important because he's he's in a team with a wealth of experience, with riders with a wealth of experience, you know, sporting directors who who know what to do. But I still think that the, um, internally they would like him to win. But they, the problem is though that they can't they can't race. They can't build a race where it suits him. They have to build a hard race that's, that needs to be as hard as possible or else it, it's too dangerous with someone like uh, Evenepoel's trailing so close behind. So they, it, it will eventually be the strongest rider from Jumbo Visma. And I, I, I just see that as Roglic at the moment. And I know a minute is in, in modern cycling is a lot, but when you take into consideration what we still have to see in this race, it's not. Brian, it feels as though Sepkus winning this Vuelta, someone who has contributed to so many Grand Tour victories over the last few years, as the team has built towards um, well, their, their, their current status as the, the best team in the world, they're sort of zeroing in on uh, a success, an accomplishment which would put them in the conversation as one of the best teams ever. It feels as though Sepkus winning the Vuelta Espana would be a, a sort of apotheosis, a, a real kind of culmination, everything that the project has been about for a few years coming together maybe maybe the sort of acme that maybe the zenith for this team you know we've seen with team sky ineos it looked at one stage as though this was a a team that was going to be invincible for years and decades and there is inevitably there's inevitably a plateau that's followed by well a, a decline and that usually comes when other teams start to copy what you're doing, learn your secrets. And, you know, also, we can't we can't deny that for all that Jumbo Visma have been very shrewd in their talent scouting, they've also been incredibly lucky. They were incredibly lucky to find Primoz Roglic. Okay, not many teams would have would have taken the gamble that they took on him. Um, but he's been a he's been a project defining um, rider for them. Um, so much has stemmed from having him in the team. But on that, Brian, on talent scouting and exactly how these riders, Jonas Vingegaard as well, how they came to be where they are today, um, I thought it would be useful, instructive to start to kind of piece together or recap, remind ourselves a bit of the Sepkus story, um, how he, he ended up where he is today. Um, of course, in, well, he started life as a cyclist, as a mountain biker, and in 2016, he was riding for a small team sponsored by Harley Davidson, of all people. Gateway Harley Davidson, they were called a small domestic team in the United States. Sort of started turning heads when he won stage two of the Redlands Bicycle Classic on the famous, famous in that race, Oak Glen Climb. And this prompted another American team, Rally Cycling, to swoop for him signed him mid-season, they took him on, and the following year he rode some bigger races, including the Tour of California, where what was then, I think, Lotto and El Yumbo were also present, also riding. There was one ride in that race that was quite no noteworthy, he finished 10th on Mount Baldy, Lotto and El Yumbo's captain, I think, at that race, you know, Robert Hasing finished 9th. And this was the ride that really caught the attention of Yumbo Visma. I this morning spoke to Grisha Neerman, one of the Jumbo Visma director sportives, who was more responsible, I think, than any of the others for getting Sepkus on board with uh, a, a ship at that point that was starting, well, it was, it was moving out of some fairly turbulent water um, in the team's history and was starting to move towards the sort of success that they're enjoying now. You were the guy who sort of spotted Sep or sort of pointed him out to the management in 2017 Tour of California. Is that right? What, what did you see there? I see potential, saw a potential uh, World Espanya winner. <laughs> now, but, uh, 
Uh, he was on uh, what was then rally, and uh, uh, first of all, he, I think he finished eighth or ninth on uh, on Mont Baldi. But uh, I was even more impressed. Uh, I remember the last stage uh, we were in the lead with uh, with uh, George Bennett, and uh, there was quite a quite a hard final stage, uh, which we desperately tried to control. And uh, there was a, there was a strong front group away, and then uh, I think Seppi went across by himself on a climb of uh, 3-4k he went across solo to the front group and uh, and then pulled the whole day in front because uh, I think one of his teammates won uh, back then and uh, yeah that that impressed me quite a lot so that same night uh, I went uh, I went to him and uh, there was a little party in the hotel and uh, I remember going to him and uh, asking him for his uh, for his telephone number and that that we would be interested and uh, he was pretty drunk but uh, he still uh, gave me the number and and uh, and that's how it started a lot of guys have come over from the States and they've struggled in Europe because the racing is so different, the roads are so wide there. Um, were, did you have those concerns, reservations about him? Yeah, he, had, he didn't have an easy time uh, to start with. Like I think uh, when he first uh, came over uh, in, in the winter, he, he gained quite a lot of weight and, uh, and he didn't have a good start of the season. He was really struggling and uh, I think it was then from that year's tour of California in 2018 that, that we saw uh, like uh, he's going better and better. Uh, then he won, uh, I think, uh, that year already the, in, uh, what was it, Colorado, Utah, Utah won, I think. Uh, afterwards, we took him to the Vuelta, where, where in hindsight, after a week, we thought, ah, oh, we should have sent him in the break because he would have won every mountain stage. And when we sent him in the break, he was the first one dropped because he was already for 10 days. He progressed uh, little by little from there, and I think also... Uh, his wife Noemi uh, played a big part in that because he's half Spanish now, and I think he really feels at home in uh, in Andorra where he lives, and and I think that's a yeah that, that's a big part of, of of him really settling in in, in Europe, and that's also a part of his success. And in that phase, Grisha, so 2017, when you were going to races as sports directors, was that part of your responsibility, your brief to look out for young talent? Was the team particularly looking for? climbers 22 21 year olds at that time no but of course we're always looking for uh, for young young talents and and back then uh, it was still a little bit different like right now of course every junior already has a manager and and we do a lot of scouting via our, our development team but back then i just came out of the the uh, development team ranks when i when i was with Rabang development team as director i mean we also always did did some scouting on the road and and that's also for example how we how we found jonas at basically uh, contacts with still uh, like sport directors that i knew back from that time and 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 then we we got in into contact with jonas and we signed him um i think it's developing a little bit into another direction that right now if you want to really have want to have a top rider you you almost have to sign him when he's a junior uh, but but in 2017 2018 uh, yeah I, I also did part of the scouting still before we had a development team and and i mean that's still the case of course when we see young riders uh, uh, potentially good riders in the races uh, then uh, i talk about that with marine and with with mathieu and and uh, um no, we, we, we get into the interest and, and then we we find out who's the manager and we, we talk to them or we talk to the rider in the first place. Like uh, I think in our team at least we look for the riders we don't want we want to have and, and we are not waiting for offers from managers like oh this rider is free do you do you want to uh, are you interested I think with us it works a little bit the other way around. And then last thing, Grisha. So it sounds as though it was a relatively easy negotiation there wasn't it's not like there were 10 teams who were trying to sign him there was a manager who was who was conducting an auction uh, no, at that time Sepp already had a manager uh, but uh, um, I think yeah we were always in the lead uh, I actually don't know exactly if there were other teams also after him or if he had more offers but uh, I think we did a, we did an ergo test and uh, that also showed really a lot of potential and and then then we gave him a contract and we signed yeah, that, that, that's how it started. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Remco, if I say Tormele, what images, what words come into your head, if any? Uh, well, I did a recon of this one, so I don't know it. I know it, but I don't know it very well. But uh, of course, Tourmalet is one of the, the mountains that when you speak about cycling, you, you just, it pops in your head. It's like Montfantou, Angliru, uh, Mortirolo, you know, these climbs on Colan. It's just one of those climbs that everybody knows. Are you interested in the history of it? Um, do you know much about the history of it? Uh, I don't know a lot about the history of it, actually. So. You and a lot of other riders. I am Joe Dombrowski from Astana, Kazakhstan team. Uh, I would associate it more with the Tour de France than the Vuelta. I don't think I've ever done it. But let me check and come back to you on that because... Uh, it's, it's like saying, it's like going to the Vatican and then someone asking you five years later, or I don't know, the Colosseum, or and, oh, I don't know if I've been there. Yeah, but you know, we go so many places and there's two things that I've found how you know you've been somewhere as a bike racer. Strava, because you know, you start perusing the map and it's like, oh, I didn't know I did this climb, but you know, I have a time on it, right? And then the other thing is um, Wi-Fi. You know, you show up to the hotel and your phone's already on the Wi-Fi. It's like, I guess I've been here before. Shameful, I'm gonna start covering another sport. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know, this is a mountain that bleeds history, folklore. This is what I was hoping you were going to say. I'll, I'll check on Strava tonight if I've done it, and I'll let you know. Uh, Lewis Askey, Group Armour FTG. Just wanted to ask you one thing. The Tourmalade, any experiences with it? What, what comes You're going to tell me, ask me about that? <laughs> what comes into your head when I say Tourmalade? Uh, well, luckily I've never done it before, so... Uh, <laughs> I've asked about 20 people today, none of them have done it. Yeah, well, actually, I'm more scared. I mean, yeah, it's of course, it's a brutal stage. Um, but I think, at the end of the day, it's so brutal that it's kind of... There's going to be a big group out of that trying to push through together. It's probably, like, for us guys, there's not a lot we can do. And I, personally, I predict that Yumbo are going to try and ride pretty hard on every single climb. So for us, it probably is much quite a day of survival. I'm honestly more scared for this other one we've got coming up. Uh, Ar 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 what's it called now? Aringlu Ar or something? Aring? Aringlu. Yeah, this one because I, I was, I'm, at the moment I'm reading. Um, I'm going for a few different books, and one of the old ones was uh, David Miller's one from quite a few years back, and he's talking about that at the moment. And I've real, I found out we do that in this well, so yeah, I'm, I'm not so uh, excited for that one. French to, to call yourself a king, you know, but people like to, to call me like this, I like it, it's funny, but myself calling me King Kenny, I would find it a bit, no? What do you think? I don't know. You're in honestly, in, in, in what do you think if I would start to, <laughs> to call myself King Kenny? Yeah, yeah, my impression of you would change. Um, okay, just introduce yourself normally. Say your normal name and who you ride for. I am Kenny Ellison <laughs> riding from Lidlton. You know, I always, I uh, almost did the world. <laughs> um, I say Tourmalet, what do you say? France. Montaigne, France, Arb, long, altitude. <laughs> mythical, yeah, legendary. Yeah, mythical, legendary, uh, Queen stage. And often, no? Do you, do you like it? Is it a climb that you like? Yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, Spandel a little bit less. It's really a small road, uh, but uh, Obisk, I like it also. I did, I was second uh, like long time ago. Uh, I like this climb also, but yeah, Tomale is mythical. You always like to, like, it's smell also like the Tour de France, you know, it's this, this kind of climb. So, yeah, it's gonna be epic. Okay, my name is Larry Warbass, and I'm also known as the Motown Maestro. Uh, to be honest, I don't know if I've ever done it. Uh, I guess it's hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I don't know. I was looking at it the other day. I don't know. Maybe I've done it as like an under 23 or something, but I'm not really sure. I have to like look look a bit harder, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be really hard tomorrow. Was there like a big battle between Schleck and someone else? Contador. Is that where he dropped his chain or something? No, it wasn't, but that was the same tour. Okay. Well, I'm close. Getting close. Yeah. Uh, that's, I don't really know much else, to be honest. Well, Brian, uh, I sent you that little montage earlier in the day, and I think you were as aghast as I was. Yeah, I was. I mean, I can't say that I'm surprised. You and I have, have talked about this both on and, and off the podcast over the last years. And uh, I, I, at least, I, you know, I appreciate the honesty, you know, that there's, there's absolutely no embarrassment about this complete, like, there's just void of historical background of the sport. I mean, not, not totally. I think they all have childhood heroes. But the, the places where cycling has been defined, suppose they have a bunch of time to think about a lot of things when they're out on these long training rides or when they're sitting up on the top of Tide. But reading books about the history of cycling, certainly, or audio books, is not one of them. Well, we heard Lewis Askey there at least is trying. I mean, he's a yeah. young rider. Um, we should cut him some slack. Um, he's, he's at least trying to... But don't you remember, the, 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 wasn't it the first stage, uh, tour stage that um, Peter Sagan won and Bernard Noe was on the podium congratulating him and he told he had no idea who he was. Yeah, <laughs> poor, yeah. poor Bernard Noe, I mean, he's an absolute legend, even in, in, you know, for younger generations than ours. Brian, I'm sure Henri Desgranges listens to the cycling podcast every night in his grave and I'm sure he's spinning, or Eugène Christophe. Um, can you imagine them? You know, the sort of among the forefathers of the Tour de France. Can you imagine them hearing that? Um, Brian, on on that note, maybe we should hear from someone who does know a bit more about the Tourmalet, um, i.e. you. Um, let's hear about tomorrow's stage, what we've got in store, shall we? La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Brian, I'm not going to tell listeners about the dinner, well, I did have dinner again last night, but we were in Soria last night. We mentioned it yesterday, um, the town, the closest big town to the beautiful, beautiful finish that I um, waxed, lyrical, waxed lyrical about um, on the Laguna Negra and Soria. What a beautiful surprise that was. Um, town, little sort of provincial town of about 40,000 people, um, lots of very beautiful buildings, monuments, and um, mushrooms are the speciality of Soria. Mushrooms sort of foraged in the surrounding hills, mountains, woods, and we had some last night, and um, quite splendid it was too. But Brian, we've got, well, one of the dishes of the Vuelta a España tomorrow, but it's a French dish. I'll take it, you know. <laughs> now tomorrow is, is bound to be really spectacular, not just because of where we are in the race and, and the GC, but, but by, the, by the race route itself. It's super short, but it's all up and down, and there's some legendary climbs in it as well. It just starts with a, with a, with a little bit of a climb and a long descent to the Col d'Aubisque. So we're, we're just in the, in the Pyrenees terrain that we, we know so well from the, well, at least you and I know so well from the Tour de France. And uh, there's not really, there's no, there's no flat kilometers. There's not, even, there's not even much of a plateau anyway on this 134 kilometer stage. And after uh, the, the Col du Bisque, uh, they climb the Col de Spandel and then it's downhill to the valley and then up on the, which I believe must be the western side of the Col de Tourmalet. A pure, short and very, very hard climbing stage with yes, 4,000 plus climbing meters. It'll, it'll be a, a huge bike race from the go. Without a doubt. Brian, I was speaking to some of our colleagues and well, our mutual friend, uh, Søren, from TV2, Danish television, at the finish. And I know he spoke to Jonas Vingegaard this morning and asked him whether, asked Vingegaard whether he thought he might get some freedom, some latitude to try an early attack tomorrow. And Ling Vingegaard suggested that that may indeed be the case. A um, couple of questions. One, is that a good idea? Is that going to be useful for Jumbo Visma and well two do you think that he can do what whatever the team's goal is for him tomorrow do you think he's do you think his form is where it needs to be to have a serious impact on the race tomorrow I I, I doubt it that I doubt that it that it's that is at that level but the fact that that the question mark about it is is imminent 
it also means that other riders are in doubt of how you know how deep into the stage he can go and how far out he can he can stay there and and, and don't forget he's he's only and i'm putting that in brackets and he's, he's been a bit of on a down downward slope especially from the time trial judging from his current shape but if you look at the riders who are surrounding him who are in the same time you know ayuso almeida they're not gonna let him go you know it's not like even if he's even if he's strong and even if they have to have a strong card to play even in the earlier part of the race there are other riders who, who just can't afford to let Vingegaard go because he's, he's going to take over their positions in the gc if he if he gets away with it so i i highly doubt that that he will be able to go early uh he might he might like to and he, he might have to be a card that they need to play at some point in the stage but i i think it'll have to be maybe maybe on the later 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 ramps on the obisk or, or maybe not even until they call the the spondel I, I don't think he'll get away before that yeah i mean it's all relative isn't it when people talk about early attacks um, i mean this is 134 people, kilometer stage with all mountains it yeah. can only be early right <laughs> yeah well yeah exactly i mean some person some people's early is the the obisque you know between yeah. sort of after 35 kilometers other people's early is at the bottom of the tourmalet the bottom of the tourmalet would would make a lot of sense because normally when they when they set up their strategy for a stage like this They'll say, well, we need to be pulling as hard as humanly possible for at least for the last, say, like two hours. We'd need to take full control of the stage. <clears throat> Tomorrow is different because it's so short. And then when you think of it, you know, with Kuss in the leader's jersey, with Roglic being potentially the guy who will have to take on Evenepoel, either on Seb Kuss's behalf or, or to try and win the, the race himself, They'll, they'll have to use Vingegaard constructively and that could either be like setting a, a, a nasty tempo but I, I don't think that's enough to really put Evenepoel in danger or in, in problems and so a, a, an early attack early in the sense either Spondel or at the bottom of the tourmalet would make sense because if they don't have anyone who can pull at a high level an attack might be better because then, he, then they actually play the card that he needs that he can potentially be because if he gains a minute someone will have to do something question if somehow tomorrow i don't know what would lead to this scenario but say i don't know remco even attack somewhere and primos roglic is the only jumbo visma rider well he's, he's the only one out, out of primos roglic and sepkus who can follow remco what do you think the instructions to Sep, sorry to jonas vingegaard will be at that point how early do Jumbo Visma decide to cut their losses and decide that well this was a nice idea that Sepkus was going to win the Vuelta Espana but the, the the two best cars they have are, are Vingegaard and Roglic or do you think they're ready to do you think they're ready to risk the chance of well having two riders up there um, in order to to well to to keep Sepkus in contention I don't I don't think they'll have a choice when that situation arises in front of them you know, because on on the steeper parts of, of the climbs tomorrow on, on the last part of the stage with so much climbing already in the legs, you don't really strategize that much anymore. And don't forget that they, they have a very strong team here, but they don't really have that many climbing domestics who who are able to, to to fight for them, you know, because usually that would be Seb Kuss. So he's instrumental in that. So the only option would be let's say that if if Kuss is in is in trouble and Evenepoel rides away with Roglic on his wheel then they'll have to try and see if Vingegaard can bridge that gap. But I, I'm, I find that once you're in trouble on a, on a stage like tomorrow, how, how are you going to repair? How are you going to all of a sudden feel better? And, and that all of this is on the premises that Evan Nepal will have a great day tomorrow, which, which I think he will. And he looks, I think he looks really good. What I, even if the time trial was a little bit subpar for him, what I saw on the other stages, he just rides with such great confidence and he's, he's definitely not intimidated by Jumbo Visma at all, on the contrary. So I, I think that once you, once you hit that point in the race, you don't strategize, you really just have the strongest guys will have to ride away. Just mentioning Remco, I'm not going to ask you how he's going to ride tomorrow and um, well, you already said you think he's going to have a good day tomorrow and um, well, he'll certainly be in, in the fight. Um, just from a PR perspective, we've, we've sort of done this before, since you have such um, a lot of experience as a, as a PR man for teams, um, just watching Remco over the last few days, you know, he's, 
yeah, I mean, I spoke to him again in the in the mix end this morning, and he just seems that the guy loves to talk, and his answers are so rich, they're so detailed, and as a result, inevitably, there are going to be times where he either shares too much information or he shares information too maybe quickly, impulsively, in the wrong place, in the wrong context. But what have you made of what you've heard and seen of his sort of press conferences, interviews over the last week? I think it happened already at the Giro for me that I'm a convert. I, I'm like, I'm flying the Remco flag all the way. No, I, I, he's, he's grown on me immensely. I, I think what we saw at the, at the Giro was a, a lot more, well, I wouldn't say mature, but just some, someone that's definitely has a little bit of a different mindset. And I think that includes how he, how he moves around in the peloton and how, how he gets along with his colleagues from, from other teams. And I think he's... Uh, He's a, he's a smart rider, actually. I think he's, he's, uh, he's tactically quite astute for, for his age and his, his experience. I think he's very well-spoken in English. I'm, I, I don't, my Flemish is not good enough to really see how, how good he is uh, with the Belgian media, but they, they, they seem to take a lot of his time, so there must be something going on in those conversations. Yeah, he's, he's impressed me. I, I, have to, I really have to admit that I've, I've, come to, I've really come to like him because, I mean, when you think of it, what he's up against here, you know, with it, and I think he's also been able internally to motivate his team in a way where they they perform, I think, out of their they're punching above their weight collectively, and that takes a leader as well, and leader that, you know, not not by fear but by by sympathy. I think that's the best way to get it out of them, and I think that's what he does. He installs a lot of confidence in them, and he delivers. I I, I think he's uh, he's more he's more. He, he would if if let's say if, if he was the strongest rider here by far, and he wouldn't have any real sort of worries in the last week but he's not right he, he's, he's definitely has other riders who and, and, a, and a team that's very intimidating but how he goes on about that I think it adds a lot of interesting stories to tell about his ability also mentally to to take on those things he's really impressed me incidentally talking about Belgium and the Belgian journalists and Remco they're gonna have a lot of fun or this gonna have some great content over the next few years some great material because um, Remco, as we said, is a fantastic speaker, loves to talk. Another one who does is Kian Uterbrooks, uh, the, well, the unpronounceable, as we have re- rechristened him, um, affectionately, very affectionately. Fantastic. Um, I, I was speaking to one of the Bora Hansgrohe PR people, press um, officer this morning, and she said that he loves to talk. He, he loves to talk even on the bus in the morning. Um, the hardest part of her day is to stop him talking. Yeah, we've certainly enjoyed our time with him. In the world to starts. One thing I've noticed is that you know how in the leading up to the world so there was so much talk about Remco going to other teams, you know, either going to to Ineos or them fusioning with Lefebvre and all of that. And I'm, I mean, you're you're on the ground, and you you I mean, it's not like the Marca and us, the two big Spanish sports papers. They're not shy of running with a little bit of gossip, but those stories have just completely evaporated. And they would only really come to the fore again if either something actually happened in, in real life or if his, if his team was just completely not up to the task, right? I mean, if, if they were just nowhere to be found and he had to struggle on his own for, yeah, for, the, for the last uh, two and a half, uh, two climbs. But, but they've, actually been, they've actually been really good for what, for what they are. And if you look at them man, man for man, and I think the... I think the atmosphere around Remco and that team has probably also changed a bit, I think. We're going to conclude with a prediction, if you will, just um, as the Italians say, pronostico secco, just a straight prediction, please, for tomorrow's stage. Okay, so I, I will say that Roglic will win, but he'll be trailing with um, Evnipol on his wheel. He'll, he'll Roglify Evnipol, but he's not, he's not going to be able to take out seconds. And, but I do think that the, the jersey will go to Evnipol. The Tourmalet is going to be roglified for the first time. Um, maybe then, maybe then the Gen Z representatives in the pro peloton will, well, learn the, uh, about the, the, the Tourmalet's legendary status in the sport. And um, Brian, um, my prediction, um, I'm going to sort of be pragmatic, you could say Machiavellian, um, in order to... That's order Italian to too, I guess. Well, in order to shoehorn in an interview, I'm gonna, I'm going to predict that Hugh Carthy. I don't know how, but Hugh Carthy is going to win on the Tourmalet tomorrow. Hugh Carthy, well, he, he has a habit of winning on mythical su- summits. He's won on one at least, the Angleru in the Vuelta a España. Um, he's 13th on general classification. It's had an interesting race so far, um, and I said we're going to shoehorn in an interview. 
I, I, I sort of teased this yesterday. I said that the meeting of the day today had been conducted yesterday, and it was um, a chat I had at the start in Lerma with Hugh Carthy. So we're going to play out with that. Hugh Carthy on his Vuelta, um, on some changes that he's seen in the sport over the last few years. Um, not on how he's going to win tomorrow, but, well, that is what's going to happen on the Tourmalet. Brian, it's been a pleasure as always. Likewise, Daniel. Thank you very much. El Encuentro del Día. The Meeting of the Day. I think got a bit better and feeling okay. I think a couple, couple of the stages before the last two uphill finishes weren't necessarily sort of my thing, but especially the one where the, uh, the one before the rest day with the bit up and down and sprinty and stuff. But yeah, in general, feeling pretty good. The time trial went okay yesterday. It didn't feel amazing, but the result was okay. It's where I wanted to sort of be a minimum, so I was happy with that. So yeah, see what see what happens this week. Can you talk a bit about your preparation for this race? Obviously now, you know, we hear a lot about guys spend a lot of time at altitude. Some haven't. Vingegaard hasn't. Um, what were your sort of what was your month before the race like? To be honest, not great. I was two to land, had a crash, with a concussion and injuries and stuff. So had a few days off the bike there, and then uh, I had a bit of a stomach problem, and, and that meant I to miss Burgos so uh, yeah then coming here it wasn't really ideal it was a bit sort of not really sure what was uh, what was going on but yeah I knew I was going to probably get better if I, my health was okay I'd get better but anyway I don't like to dwell on that it's, it's sort of water under the bridge or a grand tour it's time to sort of correct everything so yeah I was in one piece when I started we did okay in the team time trial we got that together on the on the night and, and things went from there so yeah I think we started in a good place did okay to get in that move on stage five or whatever it was uh, that was quite that was a bit of a I would say lucky but it was I was in the right place and it turned out quite a nice little, little bonus that to get back into the game pretty happy where I'm at it's, you look at the result you look at the, the GC now and yeah you, to get into the top 10 is going to be extremely difficult with, uh, with the riders ahead of me but at the moment I'm not going to give up trying I think something's got to give up there as well there's, there's too many riders from the same team and stuff so I, th I think at some point some people are going to have to work for other people and maybe drop back so he was watching the video back from Laguna Negra last time 2020 um, you know it seems a long time ago when you watch back do you sort of and that was the first Grand Tour after Covid or the first season after Covid do you sort of think there was a before and after do you feel that there was a bit of a quantum leap with around about that time with covid no i think it was brewing i think when i turned professional i think that was when everything started to get a bit more for younger riders bernard i'd say bernard was probably the first riders to be those sensation and then i can't remember who was next then roglic was that this sensation that came he was already professional he'd already been there a few years but it took him a while to find his feet but yeah I don't know there's been a big jump I, don't, I wouldn't say it was due, due to Covid or after that period I don't know I, I think all sports in general are more professional over the years keep about 10 years 20 years 30 years so I think cycling's got more professional I think until the past sort of say 10 years I think there wasn't as much science it was just two wheels a bike and put your, put your kit on and go now with the nutrition and uh technology even to do with tyre sizes and selecting different tyres, stuff like that, it, it's, it, it makes a big difference. And if you're one year, one season behind in development, stuff like that, you're a long way behind now, especially in a time trial or uphill finish. And I think the competition as well, I think with the level being higher, everyone training to a higher standard and living to a higher standard, taking things more, like I say, the level of professionals hasn't gone up, I think it's made it more competitive. So everyone's fighting for more and it's just pushing up and up and up so I think it's a combination of that I don't think anything's changed from one one particular reason or one point in time it's like the awareness of what everyone else is doing maybe you could call it paranoia sometimes that's obviously increased with things like you know going further back social media and things you you, you must have this awareness that oh so-and-so's altitude so-and-so's an altitude that maybe raises the, the level as well yeah you can see what everyone's doing I think to a degree and some teams are more happy to share it than others but yeah everyone knows when everyone's in Tenerife or in Sierra Nevada people have been doing that for decades people were doing that 20 years ago going to hotels altitude and stuff so I don't know maybe we're just in the moment now thinking everything's more professional I think the difference now is the the, the general level the top riders are probably the same they, they climb the same speeds and they pay the same attention to detail 
but I think it's the riders at the back of the peloton that are taking it more seriously now, so the whole the whole level's higher. Good as well. It's good to be in an era where everything's... To see these riders, I think there's going to be some legendary riders from my era. There's some eras in cycling where there's just one or two, but if I can finish my career and say I was oh, I was in... I raced with 20 of those, that's a pretty nice, nice era as well. A lot of champions. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.